Daniel chapter 11, beginning in verse 36. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers, or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A god whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him he shall all load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. But the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. He shall come into countries and shall overflow, overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall. But these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the many part the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver, and all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall, shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge over your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as it has never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, come some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt." And those who are wise shall shine like the, brightest, like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shall shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on the other of the bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who is above the waters of the stream, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, who is above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, and swore by him who lives forever that it would, that it would be for a time, times and a half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. But the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Together, located in Syria, and they're doing battle against the kings of the south in Egypt. They're the Ptolemies. So we looked at that last week. But guess who's in the, the middle of that conflict? 
Seleucid's in the north, Ptolemy's in the south, and they're in the middle of called the glorious land. That's the promised land. You have God's people, the Israelites. They're there in the middle, caught in the middle in the area troubled by war, and they suffered as a result of that. So this vision given in chapters 10 through 12, this final vision given to Daniel, is given to prepare God's people for the difficulties that will arise. First for the time of the Greek empire and then for latter days. And this prophecy in chapter 11 was given in such great detail that many critics say that it was impossible that it was written prior to these events. There's no way anybody could have got all those predictions right. Well, we know that nothing is impossible with God, right, who spoke and the world came into existence. The God who knows the, the very numbers of hairs on our head, or for some of you guys I'm looking at, you, God didn't have to count too far, right? <laughs> this vision is given three or four hundred years before these events actually took place, before all these marriages and murders actual take place. And we saw that the focus of that chapter 11, the majority of those verses are focused on one king, one leader, one ruler, and that's Antiochus Epiphanes. And he's mentioned in such great detail, even more so than Alexander the Great. You remember Alexander the Great was given two or three verses. He's the greatest Greek ruler known to man, but yet most of the attention focuses on Antiochus Epiphanes. And why is that? Is because he had the greatest influence, negative influence, on the people of God. Under his hand, the people of God suffered greatly. And so what is God doing? He's equipping or getting them ready for this persecution, for this difficulty. Antiochus is going to bring great suffering to God's people. In verse 33 and verse 35 of chapter 11, it says that the wise will stumble. It means they will suffer. But this suffering only lasts as long as God allows it. Look at verse 35 of chapter 11. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, died in 163 B.C. during an expedition in Persia shortly after he desecrated the temple. So this time of suffering and persecution at his hand is only going to last for a short while. But look at verse 36. Another king shall arise. And who is this king? And the king shall do as he wills. Who is this king? Is it Antiochus? Some people think this is continuation, talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. But it talks about the, the kings of the north and the kings of the south coming and warring against this king. So it can't be Antiochus because Antiochus is the king of the north. Also, we know that Antiochus passed away shortly after his desecration of the temple. So this is a kind of controversial, kind of difficult to know who this king is. Some think that this is the end-time Antichrist, that there's a gap between verse 35 of chapter 11 and verse 36 of chapter 11. There's this gap where we're transported ported to the end time right before Christ returns and this is referring to the Antichrist and could be but a, another view is that these verses 
prophesy part of the history of the early Roman Empire, and this is where I land. This king might be not just one Caesar of the Roman Empire, but it might represent all of the Caesars. This king represents the kingdom, as we've seen in the prior visions of the four kingdoms of the world. It appears to, to flow, this verse 36 through 45, appears to flow in continuation with the preceding paragraph. There's a reference to the king of the south, the king of the north, without the slightest indication that there are any differences from those in the, in the fourth through the second centuries that we, we've seen described previously. So that's where I, I'm landing here. And so my first point, it, we just recognize the presence of the fourth kingdom, Rome, in verses 30, 36 through 45. Think about the, the Roman they made a laughing stock of all divinities and ridiculed the very name and appearance of godliness. In fact, hold your place there. Flip back to chapter 7. We've seen several visions talking about these different kingdoms, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. In Daniel chapter 7, there was a vision of these four kingdoms. Look at verse 25. Speaking of the kingdom of Rome. He shall speak words against the Most High, the Most High being Yahweh, God, the God we worship, right? And shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half a time. Sounds real familiar to what we read here in these following verses. Verse 37, he shall pay no attention to the gods of, the, of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He doesn't pay too much attention to the gods and the goddesses of those who've gone before him. And why is that? For he shall magnify himself above all. The rulers of the Roman Empire, they didn't care too much about divinities and gods because they wanted to be worshipped. They declared themselves to be God. In fact, Julius Caesar's son, Octavian, he changed his name to Caesar Augustus, the august one, the grand, the majestic one, who sent out messengers to the far reaches of the empire to declare that only through the name of Augustus Caesar can men be saved. Blasphemous statement, is it? When I say that, you, it automatically brings to mind Acts chapter 4, verse 12, as Peter and John, there before the council, they'd been in prison and told not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And Peter says those very words, speaking about Jesus. There is no name under heaven whereby man must be saved, but under the name Jesus of Nazareth. But Caesar Augustus said those words about himself. He even had coins minted in his image, in his name, saying, Lord and Savior of men. 
he shall magnify himself above all. Look at verse 38 and 39. Their God was the God of fortresses. This is referring to the power of the Roman Empire. They honor the God of power. They bow to the God of force. Whoever's the strongest makes the rules. For the Romans, the glory that would be given to a deity they thought should be given to them as a people, as a kingdom. And as they acquired new lands and new nations and new governments, their glory is magnified. And the idols and the deities, they're inconsequential unless they can be used to take over more land and conquer more people. So look at 40 and 41. The Caesars, they, they fight those from the north, they fight those from the south, and they, of course, occupy the glorious land, the promised land, Israel. Israel continues to be a vassal state. And it, it mentions enemies of Israel, Edom and Moab and Ammonites, and they are those out-of-the-way peoples who are, find themselves in caves and in crevices and living in the wilderness. But the Caesars of Rome, as you look in 42 and 43, dominate the political and military landscape with very few exceptions. They rule with an iron fist. They rule without mercy. And we see them inhabiting Israel. We see that in the New Testament. We read the New Testament. What do we see? We see this culture, this Roman culture, having influence over the people of God. But yet, look at verse 45. Yet he shall come to an end. And we see, this is one of the things we've seen throughout Daniel. Pagan kingdoms, they rise and they fall. But God's kingdom will last forever. We've seen the Babylonian kingdom and the Persian kingdom and the Greek empire and the Roman empire. They rise, but in a short time they fall. God sets up kingdoms and he takes them down. But God's kingdom will last forever. The second thing we see in our text, chapter 12, verse 1, is even amidst persecution and trial, God assures his people of his powerful, providential, and powerful protection. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who is charge of your people. Now, who is Michael, the great prince? If you remember from chapter 10, we've seen the prince of Persia. This is when God opened up the curtain, allowing seen in the heavenlies. The prince of Persia. Also, there's a prince of Greece, right? Those heavenly princes, those powers, spiritual realm. Here we see Michael. There's a time of trouble. We've mentioned this before. This time of trouble could be several things. Could be the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., or it could be the trouble the church will endure before Christ returns. And one of the things that's really difficult to know is which time period he's referring to. And we've said it, I liken it to being on a, a highway. If you've ever driven out west, the, 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 the highway is just straight. But sometimes you get behind a car. Maybe it's a large truck and you can't see. But every now and again you get a glimpse around the truck. And you can see there's other vehicles in front of the truck, but you can't really see very well. But you're just driving and driving. You're seeing because you're in such a straight line. And you know that in front of you there are cars. And you just assume that there's car after car after car after car. But when you can finally get around that one vehicle, what, do you, what you notice is there's gaps in the vehicles. 
sometimes rather large gaps, but you can't really tell it because you're looking in a straight line. It's linear. Well, that's, I think that's what happens with Daniel. He's getting a picture of what's going to happen in the future. But it's like that. It's, 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 it's a telescopic view. It's, it's, it's called the prophetic perspective. You can't always tell when one event ends and another event begins. And so Daniel is seeing all this trouble that's going to take place. He's seeing the trouble of Antiochus Epiphanes. Remember, they desecrated the temple, that Greek ruler. And then we're going to see the Romans and their destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And that's going to be a, a, a terrible, a terrible time. We're going to see the, the Christ being born and being crucified, and him resurrected, ascended. You're going to see the persecution of the church, God's people. In years to come, and then you're going to see right before Jesus returns, you're going to see the Antichrist come on the scene, and you're going to see a lot of persecution, a lot of difficulty there. So I think that's what happens with Daniel. He sees things in the distance, so you can't tell one event from the other. They kind of run together. And this is what we call the last days. Michael is mentioned here, the archangel. According, he's called the archangel in Jude 9. He's going to arise. And these angels, when they come on the scene, they seem to indicate a heavenly authority that correlates to earthly realities. Prince of Persia, right? Speaking about the, this angel as Persia dominates the landscape. Then you have the prince of Greece. Speaking about these angelic beings as Greece as the Greek Empire rules the world, right? But here you see Michael, the archangel, on the scene. And what does that tell us? That God is up to something. That God is present. We know Michael mentioned in Revelation chapter 12. Let's look at that text. We'll pull it up on the screen there for you. Revelation 12, 7 through 9. No, we won't. We're going to flip there. Revelation. Flip there real quick. It won't take just a second. We've, been, we're in, we've done Bible drill. Let's go to Revelation chapter 12 real quickly. You there yet, Bible drillers? Hey, if you're not there yet, you need to come on Wednesday night. If you're not there already, you need to, be, you need to come on Wednesday night. We're doing biblical literacy type stuff. So, uh, Revelation chapter 12. This, we see Michael here in conflict. Look at chapter 7. Revelation 12, 7 through 9. Now war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So we see... As Michael comes on the scene throughout the scriptures, what do we see? We see God and his kingdom on display. Lincoln Duncan says this about Michael's presence. He says it lets Daniel know his providence controls all the events of their lives and he is protecting his people. So even in the midst of his, this turmoil, God's people are not victims. We are never victims. Though we may feel like our fate is out of control, out of our hands at times, and in the hands of our enemies, God's, what's he saying? He's saying, don't think that you're ever a victim. For no child of mine 
can be victimized while I'm in control of providence. So every trial that we have is purpose for our blessing and for God's glory. Michael's on the scene there in chapter 12, verse 1, and lets Daniel know that God is present and he is in control and his providence will win out. The third thing we see is that God's kingdom will last forever. We began our study in Daniel, and that's what we finish with. God's kingdom will last forever. God is in control of history. There shall be a time of trouble such as never been seen. or Never since there was a time, a nation till that time, but at that time your people shall be delivered, and everyone whose name is shall be found written in the book. It's interesting. We see this deliverance or resurrection. We look forward to that. And it's not just a New Testament promise that we look forward to, but in those in the Old Testament, they look forward to it as well. And those saints who persevere and endure the abomination of desolation that occurred during Antioch Epiphany's time in 167, and those who are faithful amidst the persecution and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD by Titus, the Roman general, and those faithful throughout the church age into the last days of the Antichrist before Jesus returns, all the faithful saints will be delivered. All the faithful, all the persevering, all the God-fearing people whose names are written in the book will be resurrected. What is that book? It's kind of interesting, isn't it? This book is also called the Lamb's Book of Life. When we see this in the Old Covenant, Exodus chapter 32, verse 32 and 33. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. We see mention that book there as God gives the law to Moses, doesn't he? But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. We see that in Psalm 69, verse 28. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. There is this book, Lamb's Book of Life. We see it in Philippians chapter 4 in the New Covenant. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. These persevering God lovers, they're actually living dead people. Phil lost his mother, and she loved Jesus. She was ready to be with the Lord. She had been anticipating that for some time. She passed away. She died physically, but yet she is alive. Because one day her body will be resurrected, united with her soul, and she'll be with the Lord not just in spirit, right? Not just her soul, but her body and spirit will be together and she'll be with the Lord for all eternity. And that's our hope, isn't it? It's not our hope to live on this earth in this body forever. That's not our hope. Our hope is not to avoid difficulty in this life. Our hope is that we'll be faithful even amidst suffering and persecution so that our souls will be united with a resurrected body and we'll be with the Lord forever. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, we, Paul, helping his, this church that he started on his second missionary journey, he was there just a short time. He started this church, and he got ran out of town due to persecution, so he didn't get to stay very long. So there's a lot of things they were ignorant about. And one of the things is what happens to someone who loves the Lord, but they die. When Jesus comes back, what happens with them? So Paul gives them instruction, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, meaning those who've died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, those of us who are here when Jesus comes back, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's the text I always read at the graveside for somebody who's a believer. Our hope, mo, uh, the, the, the thought of, in the Old Covenant, their, their, their hope was forward-looking. They looked forward to being with the Lord forever in a resurrected body. In the New, te- new Covenant, we, we too, right? We don't think about living on this earth forever. No, we, we look forward to, as believers, once we die, our, our souls are separated from our bodies, but our bodies being resurrected when Jesus returns, and we have this resurrected body in glory. This resurrection process also involves judgment. Look at verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Right? When Jesus comes back, there's going to be a resurrection. Some to everlasting life, but notice, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. There's going to be a resurrection. It's going to affect everybody. Some will be resurrected to life. Some will be resurrected to shame and contempt. Look at verse 3. And our hope is that we'll shine with Jesus. The righteous shine like stars, right? The resurrected, they shine gloriously. We, we, we want to shine here on earth, right? We have this resurrection hope, so it affects our life. We should be able to live righteously and lovingly and kindly with holiness and Think about the Old Testament saints. They, they died without ever receiving the promise. And they, they came to understand by faith the greatest promises are not earthly. They're what's to come. They're not temporal but eternal. They would receive these blessings later. Job 19, 25 and 26, we see glimpses of this. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. That's a, that's a promise of the resurrection. Way back in Job, the oldest book in the Bible, we see this hope of a resurrection. Psalm 16, 9 and 10. 
Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. There's going to be a, a resurrection. It's a promise even in the Old Covenant. And that's our hope even as New Covenant believers. Think about this, this writing that the whole purpose is to encourage these people of God that are in exile, they're going to be going through a lot of struggle and a lot of hurt and a lot of suffering. But it doesn't end in suffering. It ends in hope and in resurrection for those who are trusting the Lord. And he tells Daniel in verse 4 to seal these, these writings until the end. These things will be read. They'll be understand when the Messiah comes, right? They're looking forward to the Messiah coming. They're looking forward to what's ahead in the last days. Look at verse 5 through 13. After this vision is concluded and these words are over, Daniel hears two other figures talking to the one who revealed this vision to him and asking questions. How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And there's an answer given for a time, time and a half time. We've discussed that in chapter 7. I don't think that's a specific amount of time. Some say, well, that's three and a half years. I don't think it's a literal specific amount of time. I think it's a determined amount of time. And there's a difference there. Point being that this, it's, it, it's not going to last forever. God is... Determine that amount of time, but it's not going to last forever. Your suffering won't last forever. But, all, but there is going to be suffering. When the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, it tells us there's going to be suffering for God's people. So God's people are going to need to be persevering. It's kind of like a little boy who is in the car. He doesn't like riding in the car very long. He asks his mama and daddy, we might say his name, Seth Michael, just for hypothetical purposes. How much longer? Five more minutes, that's right. That's kind of an old joke. It's five more minutes. Yeah, it's going to be a, a, a good bit longer. A good bit longer. We have a ways to go. And so that's what, that what God is, is telling his, his people through the prophet Daniel. We've got a long ways to go. And Daniel asked for an explanation in verse 8. These apocalyptic visions, they're hard to understand. This stuff's hard to understand. You scratch your head. What? And again in verse 9, shut these things up, seal them till the end. Now think about this. Daniel is receiving this vision in 535, about 535 B.C. And before these promises can can be fulfilled and they can take place. A lot of things have to happen. If you go back to Daniel chapter 9, these are just some things that have to take place. Transgression is to be finished and the end is to be made of sin. You remember these from chapter 9? An atonement for wickedness to be made, everlasting righteousness to be brought in, the vision and prophecies be sealed up, and the most holy is to be anointed. This is 500 years before the, before the Messiah comes. So what is Daniel and God's people, what are they told to do? They have to persevere and they have to go through difficulty. There's a lot of struggle they're going to endure. 
verse 11 and 12. But this time of suffering is limited. And we've seen that in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24. We looked at that passage, verse 21 and 22. Jesus says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. Remember, we talked about that, how they were looking forward to events that are going to be devastating for them. One being in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed, right? They went through a terrible siege, a terrible time of suffering, right? And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And, and that's what I think the Lord is telling Daniel. This is it's just for a time. And he gives them a specific number of days, 1,290 days, 1,335 days. Are these specific periods of time? I don't think so. I think the point here is that this just for a determined amount of time until the end will come. What does Daniel desire? What does God desire for his people? And he desires for them to persevere. I think so many times we, we think about a day, we think about are you a Christian or not, and think about your walk with the Lord. And, you know, we go to funerals, and um, it's interesting how we see people at funerals. You used to see them at Walmart. Now, I don't know why we just. We, we miss each other at Walmart, but we see each other at funeral homes because people die regularly. That's where we see people nowadays. But it's interesting. What do we desire? We desire to, to see the Lord and to, for the Lord to tell us well done, my good and faithful servant. That's what we long to hear. And sometimes we focus on, if someone asks about you being a Christian, you, you, sometimes we focus on a day. Well, yeah, I became a Christian, and we try to name a date. Like some of us know the date, some of us don't. But I, when I was 9 or when I was 15 or when I was 25, sometimes we focus on that, I think. But God, what God wants us to do is, is focus on trusting. Trusting. We went through 1 John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, prior to studying Daniel. And one of the things we learned is, are you trusting the Lord now? Say, so, well, I, I became a Christian when I was da-da-da-da. But what about now? Are you, are you persevering in your faith now? And in fact, will you continue to persevere in your faith? Because the one who has security right in their faith... It's one who knows that they're saved is one who perseveres to the end. It doesn't matter what you did when you was 4, 12, 17, 25, 36, 42. If you're not trusting the Lord, when you breathe your last, you didn't persevere. right? And what, what is God doing through the prophet Daniel for his people? He's trying to help them persevere, encourage them to persevere in their faith. The book of Daniel teaches us that God is sovereign over all kingdoms of the earth and only his kingdom will last forever. And we're encouraged. Romans 15, 4, Paul writes this, For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. And so we need to be encouraged. We want to be encouraged. 
the scriptures, the book of Daniel is given to us to encourage. And I know it's been difficult these last few, few chapters, few weeks. But we have to see what is the main point and how can this encourage us in our walk with the Lord. So application, let's persevere. We hope in a God who's sovereign over history and is sure to accomplish his will, which includes the body, bodily resurrection. Maybe you're here and you've yet to repent and trust Christ. The scriptures are clear that worldly kingdoms will not last. Those attached to the worldly kingdom. Amanda, you help, you help me right there? Those attached to the worldly kingdom will awake to, it says, everlasting shame and contempt. Will that be true of you? Hopefully it will not be true of you. But there is a resurrection that will occur. Some of us to eternal life and some of us to shame and contempt. If that's you and you've, maybe you've, you can honestly say, yeah, if I was, if I died that I would, Spend eternity in, in that state of shame and contempt, separated from the Lord. Well, I encourage you to repent and trust Christ. Christ died and he was buried and he was resurrected on the third day so that sinners could be justified, could be made right with God. And we're, none of us are right with God. We're all sinners separated from the Lord. But God sent his son Jesus to live the life we should live and die the death that we should die so that we could be reconciled to him. 